Let's be grateful and ask God to bless the time. Dear Lord, we're thankful for the word. We're thankful for the wonder of the life we have. We'd ask that our rejoicing would be great. In your son's name, amen. <clears throat> now we have an odd assemblage of passages. We have something out of the middle of Acts, Acts 14. We have Psalm 92 and the subsequent Psalms 93. I was thinking about something my father has been commenting to me recently on as he's been raking various Christians over the coals as they come to visit. He always asks them, what's the nature of joy in the company of believers you are in? Is it more joyful than when they first believed or less? And virtually 100% of the time, it's less. Now we know perfectly well that an awful lot of our joy is being right with God. That's what we teach in various different situations. Confession of sin, so we become right with God. Now I don't mean to, I, I, by, by not pointing at that, I don't mean to suggest that this is a different theory of joy um, than that. This is a combination with it. And it's something that I think besets Christian minds or Christian um, churches more than we should be allowed to. And this is what was th coming across my mind in Acts 14. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was a cripple from birth who had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and walked. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul, because he was the chief speaker, they called Hermes. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the people. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out among the multitude, crying, Men, why are you doing this? We also are men of like nature with you, and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. With these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now this is what, that doesn't seem like a passage on joy. That doesn't seem like a passage on the average Christian life in the average evangelical church. You don't have priests of Zeus rushing in suddenly and trying to sacrifice a bullock on the altar. But this is what happens. Same thing. They saw the miracle. Now, in Lyconia, in that area of Asia Minor, this is Central Asia Minor, and, and with the Phrygians and there was a myth that had gone before, I think it's in Ovid, where uh, the god Zeus and Hermes had been wandering the area of this, this area, 
and looking for hospitality, and no one showed them hospitality except one couple. Um, I forget their names. Um, Philemon and Bacchus? I don't know. I'm guessing. Um, one old poor couple showed the gods Zeus and Hermes hospitality. The rest of the people were cursed. Um, and so this area of the world was really sensitive about Zeus and Hermes. And they were, their mythology informed them about what they should expect. So they saw a miracle, and believe me, they believed in the miracle. I mean, they wouldn't have done any of this if they didn't believe in the miracle. They believed what they saw, my gosh, there it is. And then they took what they saw and they applied it to their mythology and they came up with a tidy religious conclusion. Let's offer sacrifices to these two gods. Now, you're not gonna run into that situation, but what you're gonna run into is many, 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 many people in the body of Christ and the church and who have believed the miracle. They look at the baby Jesus, they believe in the baby Jesus, they believe in the death of Jesus Christ, his resurrection from the dead, they've seen this, they look upon it, they believe it. We see that part of things. And sometimes, and very many times, Christians have a separate worldly mythology that they put the miracle story of Christianity in with. Instead of the miracle story that Paul comes back and says, no, 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 no. This is a different God. The living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is the God we're talking about here. This is the God who did the miracle. Not Zeus, not Hermes. Now the reason... We struggle a lot with joy. Is that we don't have the narrative that we work the Christian myth into isn't the myth in which it is. Isn't the narrative in which it belongs. Doesn't have the definitions that, that God has about it. We have entirely separate definitions. Now he says here at the end, for the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. That's like that comment in Athens a few chapters later where he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And what's interesting to me is that yet he did not leave himself without witness. You, you could go around, run around believing this worldly narrative to attach to your Christian myth Wondering why your life is not working out spiritually, while your, while your joy is absent, while your struggle against sin isn't effective. I want to share with you, just share with you this morning that part of it's the narrative you combine the myth with. And when I say myth, I'm not, talk, I'm not like a liberal minister that's going, you know, we don't really know if Jesus ever really lived. That kind of myth. This is a true myth. He did not leave himself without witness. He gave to you the creation, from which you had very many pleasant things, joy and gladness, food and gladness, 
harvest seasons. We, we feel it, those of us who have a soul, realize that when the summer stopped and all the overheated people who like to run around on the beaches and do things like that are crying in their beds because it is now 45 degrees in the morning. Those of us, nobler souls, step to the gate, light a pipe, and off we go, knowing there is a good God because he has destroyed summer. <laughs> and the people who dwell therein. May their names be blotted out. I have strong views about this. He gave us fruitful seasons. You know what it's like at Thanksgiving. We're thankful. God has given us all this. Now he is telling the Lyconians to look at this. To look at this. He's allowed you to walk in your own ways. He's allowed you to define things differently, but he actually has a separate narrative. Now, with that little story of that correction coming to the Lyconians and how they could look at something they really knew happened. They knew the miracle happened. They credited Paul and Barnabas with the miracle. They had the wrong story. So they acted in a wrong way. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy steadfast love in the morning and thy faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. Now listen to this. For thou, O Lord, hast made me glad by thy work. At the works of thy hands I sing for joy. He is taking, or not prophesying, presaging Paul's comments in Lystra. And he says, you have made me glad with thy work. I, I, I can't but sing for joy. That is the faithful who believes the story, believes the myth, and attaches it to the right broader narrative. When we fight with the agnostics and the atheists and the liberals about, say, something like evolution, we're not just our team, their teaming it. We're not just going, we're going to believe the Bible, dang it. And you're not going to believe the Bible, darn it. And we're going to have an argument about whether or not you believe the Bible. It's not about the team. It's about joy. It's not about whether you get to have a good apologetic that makes you look you know, more smarty pants than the next person. You're claiming it all comes down to the narrative you have in your head about the cosmos. Because you look out your eyes and you see the undeniable and whether you have a sight of joy or not is a question of where your heart is. What your narrative is. The romantics, you know, you Keats, Shelley, those guys. They had a better narrative than a lot of dead Anglicans might have had. They had a better 
tale that as they walked out into nature, it was much better than the orthodox claim about the omnipotent God who made it. Because I'm not too sure the orthodox who claimed that God made it or even bothering to look at it, nor bothering to process that claim. I mean, you know the difference between things that you say you believe because you really have no other idea for that belief um, and things you really believe. Things you believe, and because you believe them, they excite you. With David, giving thanks, singing praises, declaring his steadfast love with music, I will sing for joy. We're not a church, and we like to sing hymns, but we're not a church that's trying to get by our, you won't even call it a music ministry because it's not much of a, you know, we just sing songs that we like. But we hope that you would not come here ever to have the songs make you happier or the singing make you happier. We're singing because we are happy. I hope that's where you are. We sing for joy because I have seen God in the gospel and in all sorts of stories that I've learned from the word of God and I have realized the point of connection between that set of tales, that myth, and the real world. Because God's work would make you glad. I mean, frankly... You've had those moments of raw thanksgiving, right? What happens when you don't have those moments of raw thanksgiving? When you don't look at the world around you and go, thank you, Jesus. Well, what happens to you is Romans 1, right? Because they did not honor God or give him thanks, he gave them up to the futility of their minds and their senseless minds were darkened. And you're wondering why you have no joy in your life, even though you're pretty you know, up to date on your sins, you know, you, you know, I know I did that wrong and I, I said I was sorry to God and God, I, th- I trust that God forgave me and somehow you're still in some state of malaise or ennui and just um, not, not rejoicing. What do you believe? Because if you do not believe that your God has handed all that down to you, for you to stare at, for you to marvel at, get that in Psalm 19 with the, you know, the, the, everything is declaring the glory of God. The whole creation declares. We're without excuse. And we're not only without excuse when we deny the infinite power and deity of God, but we are without joy. Because the realization of this story, you will sing for joy. How great are thy works, O Lord! Thy thoughts are very deep. Now, what I'm suggesting, I, I believe that sin separates you from the joy of the Lord. David prays the penitential prayer where he says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. You can't be walking in the joy of the Lord when you have disobeyed the living God. So I know the confession of sin deals with an awful lot of it. But, you know, a lot of times, now I don't mean to write a narrative about you that's not true, but let me say that I've talked to a lot of believers, and there is a 
how shall I say this? Kindly. Groping for a word. The conceit of a sinner. There's generally this, we kind of we love each other, ourselves a lot. I just want to say, we love ourselves an awful lot. And I don't care how foolish the sinner gets. When you're talking to the sinner, you begin to go, not only oh, are they in sin, you didn't figure that out pretty quickly, right? Okay, Oops, you're messed up. But they think they're wonderful. Not, not, not that they don't think they're a sinner, but they got this sense of their own nobility that somehow only the greatest of grievous sinners I am, I am just the, the, the person who, oh, I'm so deep. I'm so complex. Yes, I'm broken, but I'm quality broken. I like this next line. The dull man cannot know. The stupid cannot understand this. We're more of the village idiot. We're not... We're not a tragic figure caught up in some Oedipal, you know, crime because we, well, that's just the way tragedies are written. We're not that way. The level of silly, I was with some non-believers recently in a group setting, and they were talking. And I love you guys, really. I mean, you know, we might not have hang, hung out together if you didn't know the Lord, frankly. We're not necessarily each other's type. We love the Lord. But I'm generally impressed with you. Generally. I'm not going to let my gaze drop on anybody in particular. He didn't think it was me. Okay, let's just believe it was you. You're the one that I really enjoy talking to. But boy, what a relief talking to believers after talking to unbelievers. Not just the wicked, the stupid is great in these people. They think they're thinking. They're not, not even for a brief moment. They are passionately responding. They're running around thinking that any, I had a pantheist in my library a number of months ago, about a year ago maybe, and, and uh, I don't know where how pantheists get into my library. So. He was thinking that everything that passed through his brain and out his mouth must be reasonable because he was using his head. I mean, that was his epistemic claim. If I am saying something is true, it is as rational as anyone's claim because it's going through my mind. The dull man cannot know, the stupid cannot understand this. I, I want to warn you that sin is not just sinful, it's folly. You don't have high-flown, smart sinners. Oh, you have smart people who know physics and then sin over here. But you want to know that physicist's life and what's really going on, how he's running his marriage, how he's running his family, and it's destroying the world around him. <clears throat> they don't understand this, verse 7, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, 
They are doomed to destruction forever. They don't know. It doesn't work. They think it's kind of like certain people in Washington, D.C. think they can plan an economy. You can't do it. It's too complicated. Somebody who writes video games think they've got CGI skills enough to might write believable CGI characters. Eh, not even. Why do their knuckles always seem wrong? They always got these really, really disturbing joints. Look, Michelangelo didn't have any trouble with them. He carved them out of stone. But you have a problem designing them. We're not really that good at creating a reality. And so our realities that are not the Lord's reality, the reality that does not walk out this door and see the fall day in front of you, and doesn't rejoice with God that this gladness of life has been given you by your God, and doesn't start to search for what God sees his creation as, if you start to have your Christian myth with a worldly definition of the narrative, you're just adding stupid to it. For lo, thy enemies, O Lord, for lo, thy enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But thou hast exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Thou hast poured over me fresh oil, which I never got as a positive. Like oil on the beard of Aaron, so it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I, I'm sorry, I have a beard. I don't want oil poured on it. But I suppose in the Middle East, that was a cooling, refreshing thing to have happen. Valuable to some. Pouring oil over him, exalting his horn like a wild ox. There's a metaphor we don't get. It seems powerful. David's looking for the goods God has given him. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bring forth fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We don't realize so many people are looking for joy in the circumstance. Here's a positive circumstance right at the end. You're saying to yourself, if I had a positive circumstance, if I looked around and saw my horn was lifted up like the wild ox, if I saw myself covered in oil, sap filled, I'd be happy then. This is the result. It's like faith and works, you know, this whole thing in James about show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. My, my naming of my God, my understanding of my God, my seeing of the world he has made, the way I process that trickles down into the destruction of my enemies and the lifting up of my life. I don't start to serve God or rejoice in him only after he pays out. He does not buy you. He rewards you. 
say, well, doesn't he say he bought you with a price? Okay, that's separate about your sins, the death of Christ. But he doesn't buy you by dangling toys in front of you. If you'll just behave, mommy and daddy, I will give you this truck. Or this PTO from Walmart. Winko, right? The PTO that Winko. We're being rewarded for goodness. We're being rewarded for the recognition. God likes people who have seen him and having seen him rejoiced in him. And the things that he gives us are the good life. We can't avoid the tragic life. You have a phase where everything goes well. But if you're writing the narrative that you've attached Christian mythology to, you've got the baby Jesus, you have the incarnation worked out, you have the death, burial, resurrection worked out, you're dying and going to heaven. You have all those basic things of the gospel worked out. Maybe you even have an Orthodox church that you attend. But really, you look out your eyes like a modern man. Now, some of you have been in this discussion with me over the years. And do you recommend Lewis's discarded image or other sources of hearing something different than the modern definition of the world around you? Do you see the world the way God sees the world? With a passage that Drew read this morning out of Isaiah, God knows the names of all the stars. Stephen Hawking doesn't know the name of all the stars. And God looks down at the most powerful men the greatest problems in the world, the greatest men who stride the earth in the history of the earth are with us today, and God sees them as grasshoppers. Do you see them as grasshoppers? Or are you running around like some wild and frantic Christian who can't believe what they're doing about gay marriage? Because, oh my God! And then they dump Planned Parenthood on you. You want to know what to do? And then they arrested that woman in where? Kentucky? Your head explodes. You can't take it. Because your God is completely unable to run his universe. Now, you know I'm not an admirer of the doctrine of absolute control of God and everything. You know that. But at least he's a God, for heaven's sake. At least God, somebody who believes in, in absolute determinism, has a, has a divine agent who's able to do stuff. But we're not, we're not considering whether or not the narrative of our world is at odds with the myth we have chosen. And we wonder why we're feeling threatened, unrewarded, Maybe a little stupid. You figure, well, why didn't it work out? Why well, sent my kids to Awana? Well, that's the problem. You put little jewels on the little boys and they become poofters later on. Our Lord has to be seen as something. Watch what you're seeing. Just for the moment, just examining your own time. When you look at the world around you, people, man's efforts, the kingdom's nature, ask yourself what you think. Ask yourself what you feel. 
the things that we are seeing when we see the correct narrative the doom of the ungodly there is a morality and if there is a morality there is a judgment simple if there's a morality and not just people's opinions about what you should do and shouldn't do and nosy parkers that tell you if you don't recycle you're a bad person if there's a God who made heaven and earth there is a morality which he will judge if there's a creation, there's a creator, a maker. And those two things alone, just those two adjustments in your narrative, that it's not a matter of my opinion, their opinion. It's the maker of heaven and earth's opinion about what's right and wrong, and that he made it. So that when a man goes against God in his morality, he's not just doing something bad that everybody agrees is bad. He's picked a fight he can't win. Not with you, not with the church. With creation. With the God of creation. He will not only be judged on the last day for everything that he has done, whether it be good or evil, but he is being judged in the moment. He's walking into constant traps of life. And the converse is also true. Those of us who are planted, who have sought him, who have seen him, who have defined his world the way he sees his world to be. You know how people who have loose views of the scripture will say things like, well, you know, you have to really understand how much St. Paul was affected by the culture of the day. And there's that schmarmy look on their face when they say it. And you say, the only thing we're sure of we don't know if Paul was, it'd be awful if Paul was affected by, because we know that if you're affected by the culture of your day, you can't be truth-bearing, of course. So, are you affected by the culture of the day? This person, only reason they're saying that St. Paul is, is they have slavishly bound down to the culture of their day. They have actually done the thing they think is a disproportion. The only person we can prove has done it is the person who suggests it of Paul. When you believe what God has said, when you see the, you might say, the center point, the center overwhelming, what does it say in Romans 1? His invisible power and deity are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. You look out your eyes with the correct narrative, you're going to be overcome with awe, joy, if you're one of his, a direction towards godliness. You will be planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing in the courts of the Lord, showing that our God is upright. You can't, I, I'm not a person, but you, you can correct me on this afterwards if you want. I don't believe that joy is a special kind of something, something, something that Christians have that is different than happiness. Dang it. It's just, it's just what you're happy about. Joy is when the thing that makes you happy is sublime, is above it all, is almost you can't even 
you can't even take it all in. You've read a book like that before, haven't you? Not the Bible, but you know, something really, really good. Saw a movie like that, heard a song like that, that you almost wept. That's how we are with the things of God. When we see them as it is, when you see what he has done, when we measure it the way he measures it, and you know you're walking out of, on your porch in the morning and the beginning of your day, that you're looking at the world God made the way the world was made by that God. You see a flourishing, a goodness, and a joy. Now I got to that point, you know, sitting there with the Bible, a cup of coffee in the morning, and looking at the psalm and going, okay, eh, that tidies up pretty nicely. Hmm, what's this next psalm? Real short one, so it's one of those that you just sort of suck in, just sort of like a vacuum cleaner picks it up inadvertently. It's not about the same subject, but it's a tidy short song. And, and then I read it. And then I read it aloud to myself in the library. It's sort of, for me, so you can take a look at this. For me, Psalm 93 was just a statement of the heart that has gotten to this point. When we sing the praises of God, some of us are being carried along by the tradition of always singing something in church, or the book in front of you, or the people in the pew next to you, or the fact that there's some good voices here that are carrying you along. Or you, oh, you remember this song from when you were young, isn't that great? Yeah, carried along by a number of things. But I trust there's some of you who sing because Jesus Christ is Lord. Who sing because this is the world. No matter what the world does, our God, our Christ, is victorious. And you can't step away from that. You don't ever feel that my God is losing or, oh, the Christians are losing. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. Yea, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Thy throne is established from of old, thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Thy decrees are very sure. Holiness befits thy house, O Lord, forevermore. That's what you see. That's what you, that's what you learn. The, God, the Lord, it, the superlative that the psalmist is trying to reach, he says, okay, I'm thinking of the sea. You ever been on the beach? Big surf, my gosh, roaring. And then he says, you know, nothing like that. Far more than the roaring of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Far more than the establishment of the world itself. We're not Gaia worshippers. We are the worshipper of the God who made the earth. He is from everlasting. The world began. Our God, work on the narrative you write of your God. What are you saying about him? What are you saying about that bush in front of you? Are those people that exist in your life, what are you saying? What story have you written? You have one. 
Just don't get issued one by the world. Don't just get told what you're going to think of this. Remember, the house of God has certain things that you're going to need to see. You're going to try to see some things, but if you don't see that holiness befits it, like in Psalm 92, the stupid don't see it. They don't see that wickedness has its comeuppance. The righteous see it. They dwell in the house of the Lord. Holiness befits the house of God. You don't see the world correctly if you don't think holiness befits this thing that we live in. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. What a world you have put us in. Both the magic of it, the narrative of it, the history of it. Us walking out into it is a is a miracle in itself. Lord, let us see. Your saints, let us see what you have done. That our joy would be full. That we wouldn't just be delivered from sin and still believing what the world says. But that we would believe what you say. And our joy would be full. And we'd sing your praises and live your holiness. In your son's name we pray. Amen.